Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast for today. Oh, my goodness, you're going to fall off your chair. Just not for another 48 hours. What's behind that? Plus, an important look at big tech. Are you comfortable with an oligarchy of Zuckerberg and Bezos and the rest deciding who is on social media and who is not? And we pose the very important question, can you get laid without your phone? Let's get to it. Happy Monday and welcome. Thank you so much for joining me and spending some of your time with us. Here's what I have for you. No curfew for you. You know, you'll you'll fall off your chair. You're going to fall off your chair when you find out the news. That is the word being reported by Global News and other media outlets is that when Doug Ford does make an announcement on Tuesday, that's what we're expecting, Some kind of new restrictions coming on Tuesday, but curfew will not be among them. That will not be among the restrictions that the Ontario government brings in. Of course, Quebec has got a curfew. But when you look at the numbers, what are you going to do, Doug Ford? What are you going to do? You're going to fall somewhere. Where I hope your chair's not high. You know, you'll you'll fall off your chair. You're going to fall right off your chair. That was what we heard, of course, from the Premier on Friday. You're going to fall off your chair when you see the modeling numbers. He's obviously seen some data. And here we are, Monday morning, and we're just, we're waiting till Tuesday. Till Tuesday, everybody. You know, Keep it down. You'll fall off your chair. Keep it down now, voices carry. Till Tuesday. Great Eddie song. Love it. Here's what happened this morning. I want to paint a picture for you what happened this morning, because we did hear from Doug Ford. On a Monday morning, here's what happened. Uh, the pool camera, this is the one camera that is allowed to film Doug Ford. We do this, obviously, for safety reasons for COVID-19. Uh, Jamie is the camera operator, and he set up today on the second floor. So you're on the second floor in the hallway, just outside the Premier's office. And the elevator in the east door is open. And out walks first... Masked, man in a black trench coat, security detail. Followed behind him, Doug Ford. Overcoat, no tie, mask on. Behind him, communication staff, just the three of them coming out of the elevator, on their way in. They walk toward the Premier's office, the door opens, and Jamie speaks. Can you just stop at the mic for a second, just uh, one quick, what's a quick question here? Everyone's saying the edge of the seat. What's, what's happening today, and when are we going to hear about Well, we worked all weekend, all basically all weekend, right until late hours uh, last night. We'll be going to the cabinet with recommendations. We'll make an announcement tomorrow. Okay, thanks so much. And the door slams. Doug Ford, giant Timmy's in his left hand, carried down low hand just over the the top, the cup of it, and it looked to me, I don't know, I don't know the sizes of the Tim Horton cups, but it looked to be a giant XL. I'm sorry, Premier. Man, that door, uh, the Premier's office, I know he didn't mean to slam it. That's just the way it closes. It's got a security latch on it. And the number of times over the course of my career as the Queen's Park Bureau Chief, when I, I covered both the McGinty governments and the uh, Wynn government, uh, the door would just, you know, the, the Premier would make an announcement, and then, bam, the door would
door would slam. That's enough for you. You gotta fall off your chair. You gotta fall off your chair, but you gotta you wait till fall off your chair. Thank you. You gotta wait till Tuesday. Keep it down now. Voices carry. Amy Mann was in that band in the eighties. Love that one. So why are we waiting until Tuesday exactly? Let's go to the Greek chorus. This is the uh, the doctors, who are referred to as all the doctors and the specialists who are not on the command table, not inside the tent. We're talking about the doctors on the outside of the tent. This is perhaps the most vocally critical constantly of Doug Ford. This is Dr. Michael Warner from Michael Guerin Hospital. I don't understand the foreshadowing. It doesn't make any sense. It's a bizarre leadership style. I mean, people need to know what they're up against because we're relying on the Premier and Dr. David Williams for our collective health and well-being. If they're sitting on information that we need, I think it's irresponsible not to share it with us. Dr. Michael Warner, it is irresponsible not to share the information with us. Keep this in mind. If we look back what has happened over the last four to six weeks, remember that Ontario goes into full lockdown on the 26th. This despite pleas from the Greek chorus in the lead-up to Christmas that there is a big problem, exponential growth, community transfer, something must be done. Well, the Toronto Star has new cell phone mobility data, and it shows over 100,000 people from Toronto, York, and Peel regions crossed the boundaries, just like we talked about, just like we said was the wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like don't go, don't go shopping on Boxing Day, but up until then, guess what? Lime Ridge is open. The detail shows that 100,000 people from Toronto, York, and Peel crossed boundaries and went shopping to a handful of malls in Halton and Durham region. Here's Jennifer Yang from the Toronto Star. One of the most striking comments was from Dr. Jody Lennard. She spent the bulk of her career advising the World Health Organization, and she said it was a huge mistake to tell Ontarians that they were going to go into lockdown, but essentially not for five days. And she feels that those few days before lockdown, that is when cases are at their worst, at their highest prior to a lockdown. And she thinks that one week leading up to Boxing Day did the most damage of all the weeks prior. So that's Jennifer Yang from the Toronto Star talking about her exclusive in the paper today, this uh, look at cell phone data showing that people were doing precisely what they were asked not to do but were still allowed to do, which is cross boundaries. And also the number of people who got together at Christmas who said, well, as of tomorrow, we wouldn't be doing this. But, hey, the lockdown's tomorrow, so pass the cranberry sauce. And the number of people that got together then. And I point this out because that is precisely the danger, I think, of telegraphing an announcement and then making an announcement. So on Friday, you have fall off your chair. What am I going to do, Doug Ford? Where am I going to fall? What's going to happen to me? You know, you'll, you'll fall off your chair. Thank you. I'm going to fall off my chair, and then we're waiting until Tuesday. At least it seems now that the new restrictions announcements will come fairly quickly after the modeling information, just new information now from uh, Adelstein Brown. He will be conducting the modeling information. It goes tomorrow at 11.30 a.m. So join me tomorrow on Global News Radio as I take you through what you're hearing from the modeling information. 
But a, a number of people have pointed out that the last modeling info that we had, and I think they believe this was the 21st, maybe, of December. I'm just trying off the top of my head the last time that Adelstein Brown uh, laid out some modeling information. And my goodness, I fell off my chair when I heard that one. I didn't need the premier to tell me a month later I was going to fall off my chair because that already made me fall off my chair. Because what it showed was strong growth. And this is the press conference where uh, Adelstein Brown basically pointed out places like Australia and France and other jurisdictions around the world that had quote-unquote hard lockdowns. And the success that they had seen with a hard lockdown, and often that meant a curfew, travel restrictions, real enforcement, a clear and consistent messaging, all of the things that have not happened since the last modeling information. But if you look at the graph that they put out in the modeling information on, again, the 20th or 21st, we're on it right now. It's not like it wasn't predicted precisely where we would be. We figured we'd be in the mid-3,000s. We knew that with no mitigation, with an increase in contacts, we would be over 6,000 cases a day. We're fortunately not there, but we are in about a 3% growth, which is precisely kind of the middle range that was shown to us in the last modeling. So if that's the case, what is it about the modeling that we're going to hear tomorrow at 1130 that makes Doug Ford just slip right off this chair you know you'll you'll fall off your chair i don't get it i i am not one to suggest that the premier is fear-mongering that i wouldn't say that because i saw what he looked like on friday he looked shaken he looked ashen but what has changed what is different the one thing that is not different is fast action. That's still not on the table. We again have an announcement of an announcement. And now we have the medical officer of health here in Toronto saying, enough is enough. Where's the paid sick leave? (laughs) Because, all right, fine, we're not going to do a curfew. That's what we've heard now. That's developing this morning. Not going to hear that tomorrow. Not going to be a curfew for Ontario. Is there going to be a crackdown on workplaces? Because we have a lot of outbreaks. That's the second highest source of outbreaks right now. It's in factories and work settings. Number one is in LTCs and congregate care. So what are we going to do? Are we going to actually do the thing where if there's an outbreak, everybody gets 10 sick days paid? Isolation hotels actually put the supports in there that's maybe going to be able to tamp that down? I hope that that is what we are going to hear when we finally get the modeling information. When we come back, a very important discussion about social media here on the Alan Carter Radio Program. We're going to talk about Donald Trump. We're going to talk about Twitter. We're going to talk about Parler. And the fact that Trump has been banned, and now we have a social media platform that has been just sort of taken down. It's gone. And what does that mean?
Is the cure worse than the disease when it comes to social media and Donald Trump? Now that the U.S. president has been kicked off Twitter and Facebook, it is not clear where he's going to land next. The far-right friendly parlor was the leading candidate until Google and Apple removed it from their app, app stores and Amazon booted it off its web hosting service overnight. Uh, there is thoughts that Trump may launch its own platform. What is parlor? Is that something that you perhaps haven't really heard much about, maybe didn't know much about it before maybe a week or so ago. Well, from the New York Times, Parler is a social network that pitches itself as a quote-unquote free speech alternative to Twitter and Facebook. Over the past several months, Parler has become one of the fastest-growing apps in the United States. Millions of Trump supporters have flocked to it as Facebook and Twitter increasingly crack down on posts that spread misinformation and incite violence. The CEO of Parler decried the punishments as a, quote, a coordinated attack by the tech giants to kill competition in the marketplace. We were too successful, too fast. Other fallout in social media world because of what's been happening the last couple of days, Twitter down sharply today, now down 4.828% on the day trading. I want to read this for you. This is from author Jillian York in the MIT Tech Review. Though there are certainly short-term benefits and plenty of satisfaction to be had from banning Trump from these social media platforms, the decision and those that came before it raise more foundational questions about speech. What should have, or pardon me, who should have the right to decide what we can and cannot say? What does it mean when a corporation can censor a government official? Facebook's policy staff and Mark Zuckerberg in particular have for years shown themselves to be poor judges of what is or isn't appropriate expression. That from the MIT Tech Review. On the line, Amber MacArthur is a tech expert joining me to talk about this. Are you concerned that we are kind of handling, handing all of this power, Amber, to these this oligarchy of tech executives? say that uh, I am definitely concerned. Uh, however, I will say that there are plenty of examples historically of private companies that are, in fact, simply uh, making sure that the rules of engagement are followed. And so when we look at these big tech companies, it's important to remember that they all have a terms of service. And when you break that terms of service, you will suffer some sort of consequences. And I think the real issue here is that they have not applied those consequences equally across the board. And is it this just a question of being too late to actually act and now we, we're in a situation where we are? Or, or is it more concerning in your mind that we have essentially railroad barons here, the 21st century version of them, and they now can shut down the railroad and commerce to whomever they choose? I honestly think it's that they have been acting too late and not being consistent with the rules of engagement. So if we look at President Trump as one example, we've seen over the past six months that they have enforced some of the rules by putting notifications on his tweets and then eventually uh, banning him from the site. But it took some time, and there are plenty of examples of where he potentially was inciting violence. So to me, it feels as though this is an issue of the terms of service not being
being applied equally to people. And I would also say, you know, what does a social media platform look like where people are free to speak? And I would say that we have to understand that uh, free speech does not mean speech free of consequences, because we can see with Parler, it's a great example of what happens when there are really no rules of engagement. So Parler, just give me a better sense of of how it operated. I've never been on that site. Did it operate like a Twitter-like app? Parler is very similar to Twitter in terms of how it functions, where you're able to uh, share your thoughts with millions of people who are on the site. Uh, as many people know who have tried out Parler, it does uh, definitely uh, seem more like a place where you're going to see those far-right opinions and many conservative voices. And there are plenty of examples over the past two weeks of how Parler was used in that attack on the Capitol. If we take it as an agreed statement of fact that the dissemination of misinformation is extremely dangerous, and obviously the incitement of violence that we saw the president in go with, uh, both in his speech um, in Washington and his various posts, even when the attack on the Capitol was underway. So if we take as an agreed statement of fact that that is very, very dangerous, I, I'm just wondering how it is then, if that's dangerous, we we... We deal with that without deplatforming legitimate views. I think you're right that um, there could have been better measures in place, uh, but that, of course, would require that these large tech companies had the staff in place to really meticulously ensure that the rules of engagement were both clear and transparent, but also followed. And we've never had that in the social media space since the beginning of these social media platforms. I, I have I read quite a bit this weekend about this and just sort of, I don't have an answer, and, I, and I, I'm looking for some guidance here, because I worry here that, especially in the case of Facebook, and you, you see these giant companies already accused of anti-competitive uh, nature, and, and they own so much, their size and scope is so large, and yes, they have the ability and the absolute right to ban anyone who violates their terms of use, they're private companies, they can do that, but they're more than that. And the concern I have is that going forward, we have now handed over gleefully to the likes of Zuckerberg and Bezos the ability to decide who it is has violated their terms. And and that has been really influenced by just the last couple of days. We, we, we've seen the anger over it, and now they've been forced to act. And I'm worried about what that means going forward, Amber. It's a really great question, and, and I would say that uh, the most important thing to remember is that I don't think this is a conversation necessarily about free speech. It's really a conversation about how much power these big technology companies have. And in the U.S., if you look, for example, at the Communications Decency Act, which guides a lot of what these tech companies do, uh, that was passed in 1996 and has not been really reformed over the years. And I mention this because I don't think any of us could have anticipated how much power faces Facebook and Twitter and now Parler have in our society, and many of these rules are outdated. And we've allowed these giant tech companies, they're like snowballs going down a hill. They've become so big, we just can't stop them. Amber MacArthur is a tech expert. Always great to have you on, Amber. Really appreciate your perspective. This is a tough one, and there's no easy answers at all. Thanks so much for having me. In our last couple of segments, we were talking about the fact 
that you can't get by really without big tech. Just try and conduct your day without Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Twitter. You know, there may be some of those that I list that you say, I don't have, I'm not on Twitter, I don't care about Twitter, I don't care, I'm certainly not on Parler, I don't care about that. You got an Apple device in your home? I bet you do. If you don't have an Apple device in your home, maybe you got one of them smart speakers. Maybe you're getting a delivery from Amazon as we speak. It is difficult to operate in the 21st century without intersecting in some way with big tech. And that really, really goes doubly so if you're looking for a romantic partner. Because in today's day and age, you really can't date unless big tech is involved. Or can you? My next guest has penned a part romantic memoir, part cultural analysis, a book for anyone who wonders how technology has affected their romantic interactions. She's a journalist, former political staffer, and author. Siri Agrell is on the line. Siri, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I just, man, you, the title of your book just jumped right out at me, <laughs> right out at me. And here it is. I'm going to lay it. This is a big, good, big question. This is it. how to get laid without your phone. <laughs> now, when I first read that, I thought maybe you were, you know, penning a pickup guide for 1984, but that's not what this is. <laughs> it's not. And it's a provocative title. I get that. But it's really about how our reliance on technology has affected the way we deal with one another face to face. And is that just from a romantic interactions or is that more? Do you broaden that out? You know, I, I use the romantic interactions and I use online dating to really just talk about the way it's changed us, you know, uh, across all of our interactions. So I could have called it, you know, how to work without your phone, how to parent without your phone. But I thought this might be a little bit more enticing to people to pick up. <laughs> and, and, and what are your, your top line thoughts about how technology has changed our interactions, especially with romantic interactions? Yeah, well, it really came about with a lot of the conversations I was having with young people who work for me, who have really sort of been weaned on technology, and that's how they interact with most people. And I noticed that it was affecting their ability to actually deal with people face-to-face. They're, they're scared to talk to people one-on-one. They're scared of conflict. They're increasingly unable to actually deal with people in real life. And I thought about the way that, you know, that's affected me as well. You know, I came of age before the Internet, but, you know, through email, through text, through all these tools that we have available to us, it's changed the way all of us interact, whether we're dating, whether we're married, um, whether we're dealing with our friends. We're more prone to, you know, to type rather than to have a conversation, um, you know, to ghost people rather than to deal with conflict. So I think it's affected everybody. You know, from something as simple as, like, I won't call someone without first texting and asking as if, if you know, can you take a call? We have tried to smooth our lives out and take out all the unexpected interactions in terms of, you know, the other humans in our life. And I think we've missed something because of that. I, and that's exactly what the book is about. And I do think that. And I think that it's about control, right? We have these magical little boxes in our hands and we try and use them to make sure we can control everything and make sure there's no unknown variables. But the thing is that those unknown variables, the 
the unexpected things that can happen, the look on somebody's face when you talk to them. Those are the things that make us human. Those are the things that we're actually after. And we've kind of scrubbed those all away for the sake of convenience. When it comes to romantic interactions, you know, I like you, older than you are, you know, I, I came of age before technology, you know, I dated and got married before technology, before, you know, there were, you know, there were dating services, I suppose, at that point, but, there, but it, it wasn't as pervasive as it is now. And then when my, my marriage ended and then I started dating again, I discovered that this was the way that people relate to each other. And it has, it, weirdly, it gamifies, in a way, not only our romantic interactions, but all of our interactions as we swipe left or right on each other. Yeah, I find it's made things kind of purely transactional, right? We want to order somebody up the way we order Uber Eats or we, you know, summon a taxi to our to our home. And in a lot of ways, like this is not a, you know, a screed against technology. Technology has enabled a lot of things. And even romantically, it means people can meet people they wouldn't never like wouldn't otherwise have met. During the pandemic, it's, it's kept us in touch when we wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to see people face-to-face. But I do think it has made it transactional, and it has sort of robbed some of the magic and the nuance and the delight and the sort of unexpected elements of, of really dealing with people uh, face-to-face. Like, for example, there is no way, you know, in, in a couple of years ago when I went back into dating, uh, that I would actually just ask someone out that wasn't on an app. There is just no way I would ever do that because, you know, the the failure that is, you know, would be part of that. It just, I couldn't, I didn't want that. And the app takes that away, which is both, I think, a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah, I think there's there's good parts about it. But, you know, sometimes we need to fail. Sometimes we have to have those sort of hard experiences because, you know, it's sort of being forged in fire. It makes us stronger. It makes us learn how to treat people. Um, and so, you know, you can use the technology to make things easier, but you have to remember always, I think, how you would treat people in real life. One of the things that, you know, has emerged over the last couple of years is this idea of ghosting, right? That you just don't reply, you just disappear on people. And you try and imagine doing that in real life. If you and I were having a conversation in a bar and I just stood up and walked away without saying anything and just left, you know, that would be exceptionally rude. And yet we do that to people all the time. We ignore them, we dehumanize them, we ghost them. And I think we've, we've become used to these behaviors that, in the real world, would never have been acceptable. Well, let's bring it back to the question that you posed. Can you get laid without your phone? <laughs> I think you can, and I think that part of the reason I put the book out right now is that over the last eight months, we've all been sort of trapped inside with only our screens to connect us, and we realize that something's missing. We miss each other. We miss those real-life interactions. And so I think that there will be a desire as we come out of this pandemic, hopefully this year to kind of reconnect with one another without technology. It doesn't mean that you can't use it. It doesn't mean you can't, you know, find somebody to go on a date with, you know, via one of these apps. But when you actually meet them, think about how you want to be treated. Think about the experiences you want and try and interact with them in a way um, that isn't informed through technology. It's a fascinating thing to think about, and our lives have changed so much so quickly. Siri, always great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. You too. Good luck with your dating. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I, should, uh, I should probably point out that uh, I was successful and am now married again. Siri Agro is a journalist, former political staffer, 
and author. And her book, Get Laid Without Your Phone, let me just bring it up here, How to Get Laid Without Your Phone, is available now. All right, I'm running out of uh, real estate here, but, of course, coming up tomorrow, the big thing tomorrow is the Doug Ford announcement, the DOFO show at a very special time. We don't know exactly what time it'll be at, but we do know that the modeling information that Doug Ford promises will make us fall off our chairs. Doug Ford, am I going to fall off my chair? You know, know. You'll, you'll fall off your chair. And I'll fall off my chair. That comes tomorrow. Tomorrow at 11.30. The modeling information coming out from Adelstein Brown. We do have Dr. Williams, our walking Mobius strip, the Escher painting come to life, speaking at 3 o'clock this afternoon. I'm not, like, I don't know, so he's going to talk, but what's he going to say in advance of the modeling, in advance of the cabinet meeting? We're expecting some announcement of, of new restrictions tomorrow, but the news from this morning is a curfew is not amongst the things being recommended. That a senior source telling Global News a curfew is not on the table for the province of Ontario. I don't understand that. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, to tell you that. My name is, uh, and I'm, I, I referenced that because this morning, Doug Ford closed the door of the Premier's office and it went slam. I'm not suggesting that, uh, thank, that's it. I just, I just realized that it sounded like I was suggesting that Dr. Williams should be shown the door. I'm not suggesting that. Others have, not me. Thanks so much for spending your time with me as I try and dig myself out of that one. That's what we used to call the dig dug. The old dig dug, when you try and dig yourself out of something, you just dig yourself down in deeper. That's my speciality. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.